Well, this morning, uh, Lord willing, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 44 and chapter 45. Last week, we ended at verse 5 of chapter 44, so we're going to start in verse 6 of chapter 44 this morning. Uh, we'll look at 44.6 through the end of chapter 45, but to begin, I'm just going to read down to the end of verse 23. It's an awful lot of information, a lot of numbers, probably no one was listening. So Isaiah 44, 6, I'm going to start reading till I stop, and we'll talk about more things after that. This is the Word of God. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps like a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I use for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make it a testable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand? a lie. Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I 
have made you. You are my servant. Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all your trees, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. And before we consider this passage together, let's pray. Lord, we would ask that uh, by your Spirit, the Spirit you, you promise in 44, 1 through 5, that you will pour out. We, we ask that your Spirit will be poured out upon us even now, uh, that your Spirit will fill us and empower us. We pray that you will open our hearts and our minds. Lord, if there are things in our lives that, uh, in our right hand, really are lies, I pray that you will open our eyes to see. If there are uh, false gods that we are worshiping, if there are things that uh, eclipse your place in our heart, help us to see it, help us to know it. Help us to see who you really are as the living God. Help us to love you supremely. Help us to love you more than anything else. Help us to serve you and honor you. Lord, you are the one who knows our circumstances intimately, and you are the one who, who knows everything there is about us. And we, we only take hope in the fact that you are a God who, who drives away your people's sins the way the sun burns up a mist uh, on an early summer morning. That as the wind blows away the clouds, you remove our offenses in your sight not by ignoring them, not by sweeping them under the rug, but by entering into the fullness of them and paying the redemption price for them on our behalf. Lord, we would ask that uh, these things will be real to us, more real than anything else. We pray that you will give us good insight and understanding, not just intellectually to understand your word, but also more in our hearts to live it out. May we be a people that please and honor you. And we would pray, Lord, even, even on this day, uh, even this morning, in a new and fresh and special way, bless us through your word so we may bless your name. And also help us as we celebrate communion, understand that the reason our sin is atoned for is because your Son provided atonement. And help us to marvel and help us to return to you for you have redeemed us. And may we be lost in wonder, love, and praise. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, you will recall if you were here last week or if you weren't but you're familiar with Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 44, 1 through 5 is a promise that God is going to transform the desert. 
Uh, you can be in a place of wilderness and barrenness, and God promises here, yes, you're in exile, but I am going to make water flow in the desert. And this is in contrast to the previous uh, Exodus experience. God has already brought His people in centuries past out of slavery in Egypt through the sea and into the promised land. And God is saying to them, listen, don't forget that, but forget it. Don't focus so much on what I did in past generations that you miss what I'm doing now. I'm doing something new. And so often, even if we've experienced the blessing of God in our lives, even if God has brought us through a difficult time, we tend to then think that that's how God is always going to do it. And what God is doing here is He's saying, no, no. Bless me for the grace I gave you, but don't think you fully understand how I dispense my grace. Leave room for me to do something new. Leave room for me to do something big. Uh, As good as this was, and yes, it would be good if I did it again, actually. It would be a blessing again, more than you deserve, but I'm not going to do it that way again. I'm going to do something even better. And so sometimes, you know, God pleads with His people, don't settle for the way that I've blessed you in the past. I have something even better for you now. You know, it's going from grace to grace. It's going, uh, the transformation that Paul writes about in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that transformation from glory to glory. Is he, he takes you somewhere glorious and beautiful, but then he has, he has something further for you. Not quite the same way. It's in continuity with the past, but it's building on it. It's building on off it. And so the people then, at the end of verse 5, they're happy to identify themselves as God's people. They're, they're thrilled to be identified as the people of God. The Lord is their Lord, and they are His people. Now, in the section I read then, what you begin to get is this really strong contrast between what God will do for His people and what false gods will do for their people. We've seen this already a little bit in Isaiah, and this is actually going to become um, a recurring cyclical motif for the next number of chapters. So actually next week, uh, I plan on looking at uh, chapters 46 through 50. Uh, Obviously, I won't be able to do any kind of justice to that in terms of detail. Read those chapters 46 through 50 throughout the week so you have some context. But what Isaiah is going to do is he's going to spiral back to this theme again and again and again. He's going to look at it from slightly different angles, but he's going to be reinforcing it. The, the, The futility and folly of worshiping false gods in contrast to the amazing privilege it is to worship the God who is real. And one of the things that's actually fascinating about this text that we'll see, of course, well, I'll just say it now, so I don't need to say it later, but I will anyway. Uh, One of the fascinating things about this text is the contrast is really this. You have the opportunity to make your own gods, and you will be like them. You also have the opportunity to recognize the God who made you and to be made like Him. Those are the options. You will recognize that God is your maker or you will be the maker of false gods and your life will reflect which decision you have made. Now, why is it that God is preferable to idols? First, verse 6, this is what Yahweh says. This is what I am that I am says. And just a reminder of who I am. Israel's king. He is the sovereign ruling Lord 
over his people. Not only is he the monarch of the universe, he's also the redeemer. So he rules with authority, he rules with absolute power, he rules with benevolence, but he also purchases the rebel. He also buys the, slavery, the, the slave to bring them into freedom. So he's not only a king, he's the king and redeemer, he's the king and liberator, and he's omnipotent, the Lord Almighty. And so, before you begin to get into this text between the, the contrast between God and idols, you're immediately reminded of who God is. He is the great king, he is the redeemer, and he is omnipotent. Not only that, he's eternal. I am the first and the last. And he's the one and only. Apart from me, there is no God. This is the God who offers himself to his people. King, Redeemer, omnipotent, eternal, and in fact, there actually aren't any real alternatives whatsoever. There is not a plethora of deities. There's one. Now, what we will find is that He's the only one you need, but there's only one. Who then is like me? The answer, of course, is no one, nothing. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and yet, and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Now, this is the great test that Isaiah will lay down again and again and again in this book. How do you know who the real God is? He proclaims what's going to happen. Now, how can God proclaim what's going to happen? Some Christians, and I want to be very careful and respectful here because this isn't wrong at one point. It's problematic at others, but, but in a basic way, this is slightly okay. That's awfully hedged. Uh, some people believe that God knows the future just because He stands outside of time and from His vantage point can see all that will take place. Uh, fine. Fine. I think that metaphysically you have some, some that, that creates some enormous contradictions, but that's fine. So at least there you're saying God sees the future, so He can proclaim it. He knows what's going to happen. But that's not quite what the Bible says, I don't think. I think that the test that Isaiah lays down here is not just God knows the future because He sees it. He's reactionary to it. Oh, that's going to happen 10,000 years from now. Good thing I'm outside of eternity to spot it. It's not just reactionary to the unfolding of events. God can proclaim the future because He decrees the future. God knows the future because He knows His plan for the future. And so God doesn't just see what's going to happen. The reason that things happen is because it's part of God's plan to occur. In other words, God's knowledge of the future is sort of inextricably rooted in His sovereignty. The reason He knows the future is not because He stands outside of time. The reason He knows the future is because He's the author of human history. And so not only does He say, look, I know it, He says, I proclaim it. That's how He knows. So the great test in Isaiah is that God, He says, listen, go, go, to your, go to your idols, have them tell you what's going to happen, and then have them bring it about. See? <laughs> now, just so you know, 
not being eternal and not being entirely sovereign, I didn't know that phone was going to go off. <laughs> if I did, I would have had a witty thing to say about it. Uh, so you, God knows the future because of the decree. And, and so the contrast is this. Listen, your idols don't know anything. Your idols can't do anything. And I'm not merely a God who will tell you things you already know. Long before it occurs, I will tell you, because I am the first and the last. I know the end from the beginning. I knew the end from the beginning before I created anything. I created everything with that end in mind. I am the reason that that's going to occur. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do before I do it. Then you'll know that I'm God. And that's the test. If you pay attention to Isaiah over the next number of chapters, that's the test that will get cycled back to again and again and again. There is no other rock. I know not one. This is a great metaphor. You know, stability and permanence, shelter, foundation, defense, all of these things. There's only one rock, only one God. Now, in contrast to that, verse 9, all who make idols are nothing. Those who would speak up for them are blind. Now, notice, it's not the idols are nothing. It's not, it will be, but it's not yet, the idols are blind. It's those who make idols are nothing. They are nothing. Those who make idols, those who defend them, are blind. It's the people who are nothing. It's the people who are blind. Now, how can that be? Or why is that, rather? It's because one of the great principles, one of the anchoring principles in the Bible is that you will be like what you worship. If you worship idols, you will be like them. Futile, nothing, no ability, no lasting power, no insight. Paul tracks this out in Romans chapter 1. If you reject God, then your eyes will be turned to lower things, and you will become like what is beneath you. That is, if you reject what is above you, then you will worship what is beneath you, and then you will become like what is beneath you. In fact, the, 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 the trajectory in Romans 1 isn't it just that people exchange the truth of God, uh, it's not just they exchange God for animals, it's that, that would be bad enough, it's that they exchange God for the images of animals. That is, they don't even worship the creation properly. They're, they're so blind, they distort things so much, they don't, even worship, they don't even worship the animals, like real animals. They worship their depictions of animals. They worship their statues of animals. They worship their, their fictitious deities that are shaped like animals. And then, the moral spiral is that if you are going to worship distorted nature, then you will practice distorted nature, which is where you get all the manifestations of sin. It's all literally nature perverted. And so when you reject God, it's an inevitable that you'll put something else in His place that is unworthy of worship and is actually beneath you. And then you'll become like that. And because you perverted the whole order in so doing, you won't even be able to be natural. You will actually function 
in a, in a way which is literally perverted because you've perverted the order of things. That's Paul's argument. Now, this means it is awfully important to worship the right God. And you will worship something. You will never escape the fact that one of the great driving forces in human nature is the drive to worship. Sadly, you, you just might end up worshiping yourself. Your own pleasure, your own life, your own desires, your own power, whatever, reputation, whatever. But you will worship something. It might be a sports team. If it is, don't, don't pick the Maple Leafs, whatever you do. You know, it, 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 might be, it might be some sort of art form. It might, be, it might be food. It might be saving or spending money. Might, whatever. Whatever your life revolves around, whatever your, your number one priority is, that's what you will spend your attention worshiping, ascribing worth to it. That's what the word worship means. It means to ascribe worth. And if you don't ascribe worth properly to God. You can't ascribe worth properly to anything because everything finds its value in proportion to its relationship to God. And so, if you drop God out of the picture, you can't possibly value anything properly. It's, it's, it's not possible because things only find their right value in their relationship to God. And when they are perceived as created by God and as gifts from God. If you remove God, you'll never understand anything uh, metaphysically. You won't understand anything's nature. Now, Isaiah then has probably here the best ancient satire in literature on the folly of idolatry. Now, some people, some scholars today want to say Isaiah doesn't understand idolatry. He clearly does, uh, although he is being rather satirical. And he pictures someone basically taking, you know, almost from, from seed form or a little seedling, you know, and they carefully, you know, plant this seedling and carefully nurture it along, and, and, and they watch over it, and, and this is the tree that's growing up so well, and this is going to have just the right type of wood that they are going to use to make their God. And they go out in the forest, and, and the tree's too big just to make a God. So, of course, they cut down the tree. And what do you use wood for? Well, you're going to use wood for a fire, for baking your food, for boiling your water. And so they use this tree for their fire, for their food, and also for their God. They make their God, they form their God. Their their God would not exist unless they crafted it. And then, having burned half of the tree and having made a God out of the other half, they set it up and they fall down and they worship it, saying, you are my maker. And Isaiah says, this is slightly absurd. Doesn't anyone stop and think about this? You know, it's the same thing today, though. Doesn't, doesn't anyone stop and think that, that if we're the ones who 
who print money. Money is hardly worth worshiping. That if we're the ones who make it, it's not our maker. That if we're the ones who produce it, it's not a deity, it's not worth our whole lives in terms of worship. Does anyone not see this? That if we're the ones who manufacture consumer goods, consumer goods aren't worth living for. They're not our maker. We're their maker. Isaiah says people don't understand. God says, in contrast, remember verse 21, remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. Israel, I will not forget you. That is, this God that you've made does not know you exist. It has no mind, it has no eyes, it has no ears. It doesn't even know that you're around, let alone to do anything for you. But God won't forget you. In fact, God, the King, the Redeemer, the one who's omnipotent, the first and the last, the rock, the only one, not only is He aware of Israel, He will not forget Israel. He he takes care of Israel's sin. He sweeps their sins away. And so he calls to Israel, he calls to his people saying, return to me, for I have redeemed you. Well, what has the idol ever done for its people? Nothing. Nothing. What has God done for his people? He's made them. He sustains them. He gives them everything they need. He blesses them. And when they have one enormous problem, one inescapable problem, which is the problem of sin, God takes care of it. He takes care of it by Himself paying their debt. And the logic here is exquisite. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. We don't go to God saying, God, I've, I've figured this out. In the economy of morality, I'm in debt. And you're the only one who can get me out of debt. How about you pay my penalty? How about you redeem me? I'd really appreciate it. I'll, I'll, I'll sing you several songs on most Sunday mornings throughout the remainder of my life if you'll just redeem me. No, we don't go to God with this plan. God enacts this plan, then comes to us. God provides the redemption price, then says, hey, return to me. Come to me. I've already redeemed you. I've paid the price. I've taken care of it. I have a plan of salvation for you. Just come to me. No bargaining. You don't need to add anything to this. The only thing that you bring to the table is actually your rebellion and wicked odiousness. But don't worry, I'll take care of it. I've redeemed you, so return to me. Repentance always has two parts. It's turning away from something negative, but it's also turning to God through Jesus. And so when we repent, we turn away from sin, but we go to God. And so sometimes those two sides of that one coin, you only get one in a particular text. Here, it's return to God. But the idea is that if you return to God, you're leaving your idolatry and sin behind. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Now, if you do that, what's the result? The entire created order 
will rejoice. Sing for joy, you heavens. Shout aloud, you earth. Heavens and earth is always a merism. It's all-inclusive, means everything. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all your trees. Here even creation uh, is singing, is pictured as, uh, is poetically pictured as praising and rejoicing before God. Why? Why is all of creation rejoicing? Why are the trees of the fields clapping their hands and the mountains singing? It's because the Lord has bought back His people. The Lord has displayed His glory in Israel. And so this is the thing that you have. This is, this is what Isaiah says. This is the message of the Lord in this section. He says this, listen, you can make your God... Out of the wood that you baked your bread over, and you can be nothing and blind. Or you can acknowledge that I am your maker. I am your redeemer. And you, you, you will be a vehicle for the display of my glory. I take your life and I take you out of sin and shame and death and I pay the penalty myself to take you and bring you to me. And where once you were a reflection of depravity, once where you were a reflection of shame and idolatrous desire, now, now, as I work in your life, you will be for the display of my glory. And all of the universe, heavens and earth, singing and shouting for joy, mountains and trees rejoicing before God, you will use your will and your intelligence to intentionally praise me because I am going to fill you with my glory. That's what God does. And you can have that. You can have a life which by the Holy Spirit at the start of this chapter, the Holy Spirit fills you so that your life glorifies God. He puts His glory in His people. Or you can have the life of futility and folly, worshiping idols. God goes on. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer who formed you in the womb, that is again, I'm your maker. I am the Lord, the maker of all things. Even that tree that you use to make an idol, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, or diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and of their ruins, I will restore them, who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Long before Jerusalem even is falls and, go, and the people go into exile, God says, the, the city will be destroyed. It hasn't happened yet. The city will be destroyed. Then a long time later, it will be rebuilt. And the language of drying up the streams and all the rest is clearly a reference back to the Exodus imagery of the deep sea being dried up so that people could cross through. I will call Cyrus my shepherd. 
Cyrus is the king who is going to end up defeating the Babylonians, who will be the superpower of their day. The Babylonians are the ones who are going to destroy Jerusalem and take the people into exile for 70 years. It's after that time that Cyrus is going to be raised up as a conqueror. And God says, before the exile, before the fall of Jerusalem even happens, I'm telling you how it's going to end. The city will be rebuilt. And the person I use to accomplish that is Cyrus. Then he says in chapter 45, verse 1, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. And he goes on. Cyrus is a pagan king whom God here calls his Messiah. The word anointed is the word Messiah in Hebrew. This pagan king who does not acknowledge God is God's anointed one. How does that work? How is a pagan king who does not acknowledge God both the shepherd and the Messiah of God's people? Well, obviously, it is not working in the full orb sense in which Jesus Christ is the shepherd and Messiah of God's people. But he is anointed, he is appointed for a task, for a purpose. Part of Cyrus's policy, politically, will be to get all of the gods on his side. And so what he does is... He sends all kinds of people back to their homelands that the Babylonians had conquered to rebuild all kinds of temples to reestablish the worship of all kinds of gods because that's just good politics. He doesn't acknowledge God, but he's doing God's bidding. So Israel is one of these nations that, of course, they can go back and rebuild their temple. Everyone else, he's sending everyone back to rebuild their temples. But the Lord is the only one who said well ahead of time, this is what's going to happen. That's the guy I'm going to use. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. This pagan king, for his own political gain, will issue this decree, but I am using it for my good, for my glory. I am telling you ahead of time that it will be accomplished according to my purpose. God does this for his glory and also for the sake of his people. God will use Cyrus to take over the world and then end the exile for his people. Now, the rest of chapter 45, again, will emphasize that God is the only God, and it will draw your attention to everything that God has done. So, I'll let you work through that in terms of your own reading later. Uh, The emphasis is that God is the one and only God. We've seen that already. He does amazing things, and there's the reiteration of the fact that idols will not be trusted. They will bring about your ruin. The key verses, though, come at the end of chapter 45, after he prophesies about Cyrus to establish uh, his deity, passing that test. Verse 21 says this, Declare what is to be, present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Again, this is God establishing the real test of deity is proclaiming what will be because you can accomplish it and do your bidding and do your desire. Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. 
there is none but me. A righteous God and a Savior. We are so used to the concatenation of those two things that we don't often stop and reflect on how amazing and astounding it actually is that the righteous God is also a saving God. He is always in the right. So the word righteous means. Which is why righteousness language can function differently depending on the context in which it's used. To be righteous is simply to be in the right in a given situation. God is always righteous. He's always maximally, intrinsically in the right because he's always on the right side of his own character and standard. The righteous God, flawless and immaculate and perfect, is also a saving God, a savior. Someone who rescues sinners. The righteous God saves the unrighteous. And that is actually an astounding thing to think about. A righteous God who loves the unrighteous. A righteous God who redeems the unrighteous. And make no mistake. If Jesus is your Savior, if you are amongst the redeemed, that is an acknowledgement and a confession that you are numbered amongst the unrighteous. Because it's only the unrighteous who are saved. It's only the unrighteous that need a Savior. It's only the sick who need a doctor. It's only the broken who need healing. And so the very fact that we own Jesus as our Savior is a confession that we need saving. And the righteous God who could make the unrighteous righteous in His sight is a God who loves to salvage and redeem those who are unrighteous. He pays the penalty for their sin. He clothes them with His righteousness. And in the end, this righteousness that now clothes and covers us will be infused into us and we will know what it's like to be saved to sin no more. God's plan of salvation not only covers our sin and pays for our sin, in the end, God's plan of salvation removes our sin forever. Not just its consequences. Oh, thanks be to God for that. That alone is enough. It's not just the consequences of our sin that's removed. It's sin itself that's removed. Save to sin no more. So, verse 22, turn to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There's only one God but he's all you need. No matter where you live on the planet, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what your language is, no matter where you're from, no matter who you are, this message can be pro proclaimed to anyone on the face of the earth. Come to God. Which God? There's only one. But he's all you need. 
He stands ready to save with power and love and compassion. He stands ready to restore your life. He is a righteous God and a Savior. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Turn to me and be saved, because He's already provided redemption in His love. All you ends of the earth, don't trust in anything else. All of your eggs go in this basket. There is no diversification of, of, of your investment portfolio when it comes to salvation. It's all here. It's all God. Only Him. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. What is this great proclamation of God? What is this promise of God that will not be revoked on the basis of God's own character? It is this. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. You cannot likely hear those words without immediately thinking of how Paul uses them in Philippians chapter 2. This text that is transparently about God is transparently applied to Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Everyone will bow before Jesus. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it's rooted here in Isaiah. Philippians 2, 6 through 11 is, is one of the highlights of the Bible. And the climactic imagery is Isaiah's. Every knee will bow before God. Why? Because if you remember verse 6, who is God? He's the king. And everyone will bow before the king. Will any rebel defeat the king? No. No, he's omnipotent. The Lord Almighty. But God is also not in the business of gratuitously destroying rebels. He calls the ends of the earth. Turn. Come to me. Be saved. Oh, I'm righteous. My standards are beyond what you can even imagine. Part of the problem with being sinful is you just have no idea what real righteousness is. Oh, you can't imagine the holy terror of that standard. What does it mean that he is righteous? Truthfully, we don't even know. All we can do is nibble around the edges in terms of negation. Well, it's not this and it's not that. But what actually is it? I don't know. It's a, it, it's a burning holy fire. But this righteous God will take us into his own character and purify us and refine us so that we become righteous too. All of our unrighteous dross burned away. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Turn to me and be saved all you ends of the earth. Which idol ever said that to its people? Which bank account ever forecast the future then brought it about? There is no God besides God, a righteous God and a Savior. Now, if any of this is, if, if any of this is true, Do you know that you can actually know this God? Like, 
like, okay, it's Sunday morning. We just, just let's 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 shelve let's shelve the religious service part for a moment. You you like like right now. You can have a right relationship with this God. You can. If you just do it, just. When God says, turn to me, that's not, that's not rhetoric. He's saying, like, do it. Come to me. Know me. Come in and know me. I'm the righteous God and a Savior. Turn to me and I'll save you. That'll go to work for you. I'll start transforming. I'll do all these things for you. And just wait for the consummation of eternal life. I'll give you that too, just for free. This is life. You can display the glory of God. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing. You can know Him. He... He predicts Cyrus long before Cyrus is even born. That's reasonably neat. He, he accomplishes his eternal bidding in time and space. Like that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty fantastic. And more than anything else, this transcendent God, holy and righteous. One of the things that Isaiah teaches very clearly is that high above the heavens, he cares about you. Like you. He actually cares about your life. He cares about your, your joy. He wants you to rejoice with all of creation. He cares about your sin. So much He's taking care of it. This high and holy God loves you. It invites you to know Him. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And we know ultimately the fulfillment of how we can know God comes through what Jesus Christ did for us, the Son of God incarnate, the great shepherd, the fulfillment of Messiah. There were lots of little M messiahs until Jesus, but He was the capital M fulfillment of the motif. And He redeemed us, not with silver and gold, but with His own precious life's blood the lamb without blemish or defect, willingly dying in our place so that we could also be on the right side of the righteous God's standards. Salvation, free and full, offered in Isaiah's day, offered in the city of Guelph, 2019. God's still calling people to know Him. Do not close your ears. Listen to God. Listen to His Spirit. Hear His Word. And allow yourself the humility of entering into love you do not deserve. It comes through Jesus. Focus on Him.